This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property and just out or fairly hot off the press is the monthly property report by the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand. So we're going to talk about how that relates to housing in our area. But just before we do, let's look at the bigger picture. In Auckland, the median house price is now up 25% from a year ago to $1.25 million. Isn't that incredible? National house price median is up to 895. That's 23%. And if we look at New Zealand outside of Auckland, the median house price is now $753, up from $600,000 or 25% year on year. Most of the regions in the country had record new median house prices. Uh, Manawatu Wanganui did not, but the median is 610000 and that's up 28.4% when compared to this time last year. So other uh, pretty amazing performers are Taranaki at 31.1% increase, Hawke's Bay at 37.7%, uh, and even Wellington's at 26.8%. So big gains there on property. Just seems that whatever the government tries to do, those prices just keep going up. So if we look at the, I guess, our region in particular, these comments by Jen Beard, the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand CEO, she says, housing market activity in Manawatu Wanganui is starting to recover from the August uh, COVID-19 lockdown. However, some investors and buyers are acting with a level of caution around the future impact of loan-to-value ratio rules and banks are tightening lending to buyers. The region saw the levels of inventory increase by 31.6% in October and listings increased on September 2021 figures And, and that could be due to the time of year being spring and the easing of alert levels. She says there were fewer first-home buyers in the market in October due to prices becoming out of reach, as well as a slight reduction at attendees at open homes. So following those comments, we'll break it down a bit. The median house price in Horofenua in one year has gone up from four seventy to 600000 Manawatu District from 515000 to six hundred eighty-five. That's $170,000 in a year over $10,000 a month for those people that own those properties. Palmas North has gone from 620 to 715. Rangitike 365 to 455. Ruapehu 310 to 380. Tararua, which is going pretty uh, gangbusters at the moment, 330 up to 465. Median house price that's a 40.9% increase. And again, that's uh well around about $10,000 a month just for owning a property. Wanganui District from 405 is now at 550 and that's almost a 36% gain. So Palmerston North amongst that, a 15% gain in a year. So things just keep moving up, uh, really quite amazing indeed. 
In fact, this article from interest.co.nz says that the average value of NZ homes were up $50,000 during the three months of the latest COVID outbreak. And the average value of New Zealand homes passes a million dollars for the first time, quotable value says. According to the latest house price index figures from quotable value, the average value of New Zealand dwellings increased from 952000 at the end of July, just before the latest COVID outbreak forced the country into lockdowns, to just over a million dollars at the end of October. And that's a 5.3% increase just in those three months. So those gains were spread around the country and uh, certainly, as I mentioned earlier, Auckland is, is well up there. So where is the average value? Let's look at some of these places that maybe used to be uh, relatively affordable, even Hastings up to almost 880, Palmerston North 760, Nelson 845, Christchurch is 730, so that's fairly affordable, New Plymouth 707. And that leads on to this article by Susan Edwards. It says the title is Here's Why It May Be Fruitless to Pin Your Hopes on a House Price Crash. So the Reserve Bank warned uh, yet again in its latest financial stability report that house prices were unsustainable and highlighted potential risk for first home buyers. But for now at least, every warning seems to be followed by another month of record-breaking house prices. (coughs) Nationally, the Real Estate Institute House Price Index increased more than 30% year-on-year in September. So Infrometrics calculates that prices have risen by more than 1% a month for 16 months, the longest streak of that level of growth since records began in the early 1990s. Commentators say that while the pace of growth may slow in the coming months, there are good reasons those hanging out for a crash or pinning their hopes on COVID causing a GFC 2.0 could be disappointed. And what are those things that are going to keep the market going up? Well, firstly, the banks are still lending, so that's always a, a good sign. Supply may not catch up sufficiently, so the amount of properties are not, not catching up quickly enough um, with regards to what we require. And while that supply and demand situation is in place, one would assume that prices will keep rising. People aren't being forced to sell which uh, if the interest rates move up a bit, there may be some people in those circumstances that have to do that, but at the moment that's not happening. So we're going to see that even with the interest rates rising, they're probably going to stay well below the historical norm. And I don't know if there would be a big crash of people selling homes. I just simply do not think that's going to happen. Now we've talked on recent shows about the new uh, planning rules that allow um, homes to be sort of squeezed into areas uh, of smaller land. And this article by Miriam Bell says that new planning rules could accommodate more than 350,000 new homes. So the law change allows landowners in Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington and Christchurch to build up to three storeys without resource consent. There are a number of cities also that are tier two cities, Palmas North is one of them, that they're trying to get this same thing to come through. So more than 350 new homes could be built in the main centres if sections are infilled to capacity in line with the government's new planning rules, analysis shows. So last month the government, supported by National, announced it would loosen the housing densification rules in those four centres. And the important thing with building and developing buildings of up to three storeys on most sites is that they won't need resource consent. 
Now, in more realistic terms, it would estimate that these changes would add between 48,000 and 105,000 new homes over the next five to eight years. But homes.co.nz did the theoretical exercise to identify how many new homes could be built if all of those uh, were able to be used, and that's based on the assumptions of 100 square metre houses on a section size of at least 300 square metres, restricting it to flat sections, and that's where they come up with that much larger figure. How on earth you would predict the number of properties that would be built uh, due to these changes is really, really difficult. So they've gone and gone for the upper end, which is around this 350,000, whereas other figures say that it could be more like 48 to 105,000. But let's face it, whatever they can do to increase that supply can help stabilise the market. So that's a, a really good thing. Another thing that's uh, come in just recently is new rules about uh, mortgage borrowing. And Miriam Bell follows on with this article saying, how new rules mean mortgage borrowing will get harder. It is an opinion piece, but uh, still, let's have a look at that. They give an example of a lady called Anna Barley who topped up her mortgage several times. And each time she borrowed between five dollars and $10,000, once for home renovations and the other to consolidate debts. And the top-ups allowed her to do things she would otherwise have had to use a higher interest rate credit card or personal loan for, she says. The process has always been straightforward. Being able to get a mortgage top-up easily has been helpful and it's good to have the option of getting one. But changes to the Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act mean the process of getting a mortgage and borrowing money on the back of equity and existing mortgage will become far more onerous. The new CCCFA regulations, which come into force from December 1st, are intended to better protect borrowers. They require lenders to apply more scrutiny than ever to borrower affordability. And this means that borrowers will have to provide more detail and evidence around their spending, as well as their income, when they apply for loans. Mortgage advisors expect the new rules to have a significant impact on the time frame and processes involved with any type of mortgage lending, including top-ups and bridging finance. I wonder if this will mean that it could take longer for our finance clauses to be met in real estate contracts. Anyway, the article goes on, yet most borrowers are not aware of the changes. The requirements will hit them hard, particularly if they're older or self-employed. And I would also argue if they're first home buyers. Advice HQ Director David Green says the first stage of the CCCFA regulations came in on October the 1st and, along with tax, loan-to-value and debt-to-income changes have led to a further tightening of lending conditions. Banks have updated credit policies and procedures to account for the multitude of changes which has resulted in higher approval benchmarks and increased scrutiny, he said. We've already seen a number of applications fail. The new servicing requirements in October where lenders have indicated an approval would have been provided prior to October. Applications for mortgage lending will now involve more compliance and delays. There will be reduced tolerance for expenses, unarranged overdraft and missed payments. Easy mortgage top-ups are no longer available. A full application is required even if you want just an extra $5,000 to build a deck for a summer. So isn't that amazing? Borrowers will still will have to smile nicely when asked for intricate details with supporting evidence on the information they provide, Green says. They should plan ahead and allow plenty of time to get their financial affairs in order. Bruce Patton, who's a loan market mortgage advisor, says the amount of information now needed for any mortgage lending will surprise most borrowers. It would feel almost like an invasion of privacy, really, wouldn't it? And it's interesting at a time when, and I'll come to this later in the programme, 
the Privacy Commissioner has really clamped down on any information that landlords can gather. However, banks seem to be able to have to increase this. Interesting indeed. So I've got this problem where landlords putting people into their properties that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars have less checks than what the bank does deciding whether to lend out a $5,000 amount of money for a deck in the summer. So the, the going back to the loan market mortgage advisor, Bruce Patton, he cites a recent example uh, uh, of a client who wanted a $10,000 mortgage top up for work, for a work van. He didn't think it was a big deal as it wasn't a large amount so he was stunned what he had to provide for the bank. Lenders want to know what people's outgoings are right down to what they spend on Netflix and PlayStation, he says. Any regular cost is classed as an expense. Before it was discretionary spending but that's not the case anymore. And while spending on a Netflix subscription or a personal trainer or takeaway coffees every day does not mean someone will not be able to borrow, but those expenses will now be considered, he says. So people will need to know their actual costs of living and what they can afford. They will need to show three months of bank statements and a budget, and they'll be analysed as part of a lender's calculations. And the increase in information means lenders will have to spend longer analysing it, which slows down the loan process. New systems are being introduced to assist this, but with the regulatory requirements, it makes for a one-size-fits-all approach, Patton says. And this is what I was wondering about, the people who aren't in that cookie-cutter situation. So he goes on to say that for non-standard borrowers, such as self-employed or older people, this will have a big impact. Both groups already face greater scrutiny of income, and now their spending will be under the spotlight too. More marginal self-employed people who write off their expenses so they don't pay much tax will have to rethink that. It won't help them when it gets, comes time to borrow. They will need to start paying tax. So it just goes on. Uh, but the general gist is it's going to be a lot more difficult. And I've heard anecdotally that sub lenders have started that system already, even though it's not due to come in on the 1st. So here's an article around uh, first home buyers. First home buyers defy perceptions to hit record market share. So it's really interesting because the property research company CoreLogic's latest first home buyer report showed that 26.4% of all buyers nationwide in that period were buying their first homes. And that was well above the long-term average of 21.8%, which was taken from records back to 2005, and surpassed the previous benchmark of 25.6% set over the same period last year. So the national trend was replicated across the main centres, with first home buyers' market share above long-term averages by at least two percentage points. So first home buyers are still getting there, out there and, and uh, getting into the market. The article goes through and talks about what people might need in terms of first home buyers uh, to buy, but we've discussed that enough on this show uh, on other episodes. Now a local article, this one says, First home buyers scrambling as Palmerston North house prices continue to skyrocket. So quotable values, latest house price index figures show the average house price in Palmas North was $760,631 at the end of October after prices leapt up 34%. Harcourt's Palmas North director Richard Jensen said, while the city remained relatively affordable compared to other cities, even the lower end of the market was moving out of reach for first home buyers. He says the brutal reality is most first home buyers aren't going to get it by themselves. They increasingly need guarantors and family to help with a deposit to get a loan. Now that seems to be uh, contrary to the article I just read which shows that more people as a proportion are buying first homes. 
Jensen said the frantic growth in house prices couldn't last forever, and while it's hard to be certain, there were signs it could be heading towards a peak. So that's just uh, interesting there as to how that's going. I feel that there's still plenty happening in this area, um, but we'll see what effects these lending changes may have on the market. So after, we'll just have a little bit of a break now and have a listen to a song, uh, but after that we'll talk about some young brothers, 21 and 19-year-old, who have managed to buy their first home and how they did it, and you might be surprised how easy it was. In the meantime, here's Bob Marley and the Whalers with Three Little Birds. Bob Marley and the Whalers with Three Little Birds. You're here on Property Matters on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Natangata o Manawatu. So I'm Greg Watson, lovely having your company today. So just before the break, I mentioned about some young Taupo brothers who save a deposit for a first home while working minimum wages at Pack and Save. So this is a nice uh, feel-good story by Luke Kirkaby. It says that Taupo brothers... 21-year-old Cameron and 19-year-old Jacob Thompson buy their first home after saving a portion of their supermarket wages for 15 months. So if you'd think a high-paying job, fancy education or financial help from mum and dad is the only way to get onto the property ladder, think again. Have a listen to this. They have bought their first home, the two brothers, while working at Pack and Save on the basic wage. The brothers who saved a portion of their $21 an hour wage over 15 months have purchased a three-bedroom home at auction in Taupo for just over $600,000. And Cameron, who dropped out of school at the end of year 12, said they couldn't be prouder. After the brothers saved approximately $75,000 by putting $333 each a week aside and using KiwiSaver, Westpac granted them a home loan with a 10% deposit Property prices in Taupo have risen by more than 36.3% in 12 months to hit an average of 837000 So when I was finishing work to go to the auction, I said to a mate, right, I'm off to buy a house. And he said, no, you're not, get out of town. He thought I was joking until I sent him a picture, Cameron said laughing. One of my mates is in his 30s and he openly told me his pride was a bit damaged when he saw me in my early 20s buying a house. He's still trying to suss out how he's going about it. The three-bedroom Taupo Central home was built in 2002 and it's roughly a five-minute walk into town. The brothers plan to live in it whilst renting out the third room to help cover their mortgage. 
Cameron said at the age of 21 he feels really accomplished. He's impressed with himself and the fact that he managed to do it because a lot of 21, not a lot of 21-year-olds manage a goal this big. So let's have a look here. Uh, how did they do it? It's really, according to them, not about how much money you make but how much you're doing with the money and the advantage that can come later from that. So they needed to make sure they didn't muck around with the money. They had to pay $180 for rent and put 333 into savings. No exceptions, because if they mucked that up, their plan wouldn't work. So it must feel amazing to have accomplished that. He said, I'm still having fun, while saving is important for keeping on track. I pride myself on balance. I don't want to be so bored to the point where all I'm doing is putting 100% of my money in savings, he said. I want to have a bit of fun, go out drinking now and then, buy new cymbals for my drums and strings for my guitar, but you can't party 24-7. You have to keep it to the weekend or even once a month. Balance is the most important aspect, and I feel like I've mastered it. So it's pretty cool that they've, uh, that they've done that. It just shows that, uh, in, as I mentioned, most of that was over a about an 18-month period, which is quite remarkable. Um, and... Although they're brothers and they're going to live together with a flatmate, it still gives hope for people who, for example, are couples with two jobs that they can squirrel away uh, something like that. So just to update to uh, uh, a couple of things I've talked about in recent shows here, this is to do with, I guess, bad landlords. And this article by Esther Taunton says, Hall of Shame, the landlord's ordered to pay more than $30,000. You might remember I reported recently on a high profile case of a Christchurch landlord who was ordered to pay almost $40,000 after a child living in their rental property developed rheumatic heart disease. Uh, And that case is just one of the 20,000 cases expected to be heard by Tenancy Tribunal this year. Due to recent law changes, the Tenancy Tribunal now hears cases involving claims up to $100,000 with disputes resolved either through mediation or a hearing. It says, while most Cases are made by landlords regarding rent owed. Property owners and managers can also find themselves on the wrong side of the mediation table. When that happens, the sums awarded can run into the tens of thousands of dollars, as was the case with landlords Anne and Roger Stocker, who were found to have breached the Residential Tenancies Act in several ways. This is one I reported on, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. It says the breaches included failing to maintain their Christchurch property in respect of health and safety matters with substandard conditions believed to have significantly contributed to a child developing rheumatic heart disease, the tribunal found. The stockers were ordered to pay 38600 a figure which puts them in questionable company alongside others ordered to pay 30000 or more. Another one I reported on reasonably recently, this was an Auckland property owner, Yong Ming Zhao, who was fined $30,000 after ignoring for years in order to demolish an illegal rental with stormwater running down the hallway. Zhao built the two-bedroom flat on his property in 2015. After, the complaint, or after a complaint, council officers visited the site and there was no fire separation between the flat and the original building and the flat was not watertight and shoddily made. Zell was issued with a notice to fix requiring to remove the flat altogether by April of the next year. Uh, and after further council visits over the next two years, Zell was interviewed in March 2018 and confirmed the interview uh, that the um, demolished or the demolition work had not been done. So when a judgment published in August this year, Judge Rob Ronyan said Zell had been given multiple opportunities to comply, been entirely uncooperative and shown a complete disregard for the Building Act. He also had income from the rental during the three years and had avoided paying rates required when additional buildings are established on a single site. 
Strict compliance was required with fire separation, fire detection, fire escape, and Zhao had placed the tenant's safety at risk by not complying. I'm satisfied the potential for harm in this case was high. The defendant has essentially acted in a cavalier manner, figuratively thumbing his nose at the prosecutor and shows no regard whatsoever for his legal obligations. So Zhao was fined $30,000 with 90% of that to go to the council. A number of years ago, a Wanganui property management company was ordered to pay more than $34,000 in costs and damages for 116 breaches of the Residential Tenancies Act. In August of 2018, the Tenancy Tribunal found the Rent Centre Limited failed to lodge tenancy bonds and provide compliant insulation statements to its tenants, as required under the Act, for more than four years. Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment Tenancy Compliant and Investigation Manager Steve Watson said the scale and number of breaches by the Rent Centre was the most concerning thing about the case. Tenants need to trust and believe that when they're dealing with a landlord, particularly a property management company that has been in business for over 20 years, that the landlord is fulfilling their legal obligations. And the tribunal awarded 115 orders of exemplary damages of $250 each, payable by landlords who failed to lodge bonds with the Tenancy Bond Centre. They were also ordered to pay 33 fines of $100 each for failing to provide insulation statements as part of tenancy agreements. So if you're a landlord and you're listening to this and you're not sure you have all your ducks in a row, it's pretty good to do so because you can get audited. And while that's a company, uh, they can also audit individuals if things are brought to their attention. Or they can even do it randomly as well. Finally, uh, the Privacy Commission takes aim at intrusive landlords. Landlords are being told to only ask for the minimum amount of information they need about tenants and to stay clear of bad tenant sites or social media groups. The sector's under the Privacy Commissioner's spotlight to ensure it's handling tenants' personal information appropriately, and the Office of the Privacy Commissioner has launched a new compliance monitoring programme and guidance to ensure property managers and other rental sector agencies are acting in accordance with the Privacy Act. We'll carry out regular checks on property managers and annually audit application forms, contract forms and privacy policies of letting agencies, property managers and third-party service providers. The Commissioner has also come out strongly against bad tenant groups online, working with administrators to close those down. I've never seen any of those, but it must exist. They say landlords sometimes share information about tenants on tenant blacklists. Such lists might be hosted on a private social media group that's accessible only to group members, for example. So they go on to talk about what you can and can't ask for. This is a uh, quite a long article, which we won't have time for today, but you can only ask them now for a minimum of information, then decide if you want them or not. Once you've accepted them, you can then go on and do more detailed checks, but you can't rule them out uh, based on uh, many things that the Privacy Commissioner is now saying that you cannot or should not ask at that stage. So the different stages, and you just go to the Privacy Commission to find this, or, or contact me, just look, find me on Greg Watson, Property Matters. Um, and uh, that's where there's different areas and the guidelines of what you can do, and you could be held to account should you be found to be doing things wrong. But that's all we've got time for this week on Property Matters. It's been lovely having your company. I look forward to seeing you in a week's time. This can be found where all good podcasts are found, where you can listen live or on the website at mpr, one or two people's radio, dot nz. See you next week. If you're a fan of NPR, 
Listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.